So last week we asked the question, uh, is there hope in a violent world? Uh, That was specifically um, worded because I think there is a real question when we look at the problem and the challenge of the behavior of human to human, the fact that we live in a world which is violent towards each other. Uh, I guess the end point that we came to and the, the questions that it causes us to ask and confront is maybe the problem is not just out there, but maybe the problem is in here um, to a greater or lesser extent. We all sit with challenges of our attitudes, with uh, rebellious thought, with problems in the way that we live and behave. We move on this week to the question, if God is good, why is there suffering in the world? This week, it's about living in this world. No matter how we go along and how we engage with life, however much we try to live in a a way which is at the very best, We cannot hide, we cannot protect ourselves, we cannot step out of the reality that we live in a world which is suffering. This is living in this real world. And it's really, this is not a a question, this is not an issue, I think, which we can just glibly say, there's the problem, one, two, three, here's the answer, go away. This is a massive challenge. It's a massive challenge when we think about the idea, as the Bible portrays, God who is good. Stephen Fry, who is well known as a a prominent uh, atheist, uh, he, he was asked the question, you know, in a fictitious kind of idea, if you did one day stand at the pearly gates before God, what would you say? And uh, he got in, in the midst of a guy who's very often uh, amusing, very, very clever, very funny. He gets really very emotionally animated. He says, bone cancer in children, what's that all about? Then he goes on to say, how, he, this is what he thinks he would say to God. How dare you? How dare you create a world that has such misery that is not our fault. It is not right. It is utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is full of injustice and pain? I really respect Stephen Fry for being truly honest about the inner emotions and the thoughts that are going on. However, I I think there are really big questions to ask against that perspective. The first is this. How dare you create a world that has such misery? (laughs) That really raises the question. He assumes that God created the world like this. That's a question, isn't it? Did God create the world like this? 
As we enter into the storyline of the Bible, and I think that's one of the essential things that we need to do if we are at least going to understand how the Bible portrays the God of the Bible, we see this. The Bible begins with humanity which is at peace, which is not in pain, which is full of joy, and it ends with humanity which is at peace, which is full of joy, where there is no suffering and there is no pain. That's a really interesting perspective, isn't it? The Bible begins and it ends with humanity in that elevated, dignified position. It doesn't begin <laughs> with a world which is broken and suffering. But at the same time, the Bible doesn't just portray that as its storyline. It also portrays a consistent idea of a humanity that is at odds and rebellious against God. They're the two storylines which are going on. That's fascinating, isn't it? So when we come to that challenge which Stephen Fry articulates excellently, it makes us think, what does the Bible firstly have to say regarding this issue? It starts and it ends where humanity ought to be. And it also consistently describes us at odds, rebellious against the God of the Bible. If you've been here for the past few weeks, what you know is that at various points we just pause and we see if there's any questions that have come through. And uh, you will also, if you're scrolling through and you've managed to get online, you'll see that there's lots and lots and lots of questions. And the reality is that we can't address all of them. We try to address about five or six, maybe. Um, but what we've decided to do is, into the new year, we're going to have an evening, um, probably not a Sunday, but a separate evening, where we try to address more of them. And here's the other kind of caveat. I can't promise to answer everything. <laughs> not at all. Um, I think there's one being in all of the cosmos that could answer everything, and that's God himself. Uh, so, uh, is there anything? Is that there's a, yeah, okay, so we'll just have a quick look. When things go wrong, or there is suffering, is it because of sin in general, or is it because of the sin of that specific person? That's a really interesting question. I think I think what that question is firstly suggesting that we're connecting, as we've already talked about the portrayal of the, of the Bible storyline, is we're connecting sin, our rebellion against God, our idolatry of ourselves rather than God. We're connecting that with the idea of suffering. We're saying that there is a con there's a connectedness. But then we also ask the question, is it a general or is it specific? Is it the sort of, Travis, why does it always rain on me? Is it because I lied when I was 17, if you remember those lyrics? Jesus answers that very clearly. Uh, there is somebody who is blind, who has been blind since birth. And that very question is asked, where's the sin? He says, in neither. 
in neither. There is a sense in which the general, the Bible portrays the general state of this world means that we are victims as well as perpetrators of brokenness. And there is pain and there is suffering. So I think we end up in really dangerous place when we create an immediate connectedness all the time. Having said that, the Bible also makes it clear that our responses and our behaviors can also result in a challenge. How does God challenge us? How does God stop us? There are moments, there are times when it seems as though the breaking in of God into this world means that it's hard for us, means that we suffer. So there is a connectedness and yet there is a disconnectedness. I suppose the answer to the question is it's way, way, way more complex than trying to create a simplicity in that. Is there, is there another? Is there a logic to suffering or is it random? Wow. Is, it, is there a logic to suffering? Or is it random? In, I guess in a way, if I read that question right, I think it's suggesting something of the first question. Is there a, something in the person? Is, is, that a, is there a connectedness if I read it in that way? Or is there a sort of, is there a bigger picture? I think that one of the things that the storyline of the Bible suggests at times is that there are things going on in this world which seem chaotic, which seem random, and yet over and above all of that, there is a wisdom which is greater than we are able to access. So is there a, is there a logic? I don't think I could ever put logic to suffering, but I think I could put a greater wisdom to the events in the world than I am able to understand. And yet at the same time, when I am in that place of suffering, either myself or with somebody who is, what does the Bible tell me to do? It tells me to weep with those who are in that place. I think one of the confessions that the church should make is the many times when it has hurled judgment and accusation in the face of those who are suffering various things and decided that this is the judgment of God and yet what we are called to do is to weep, to be alongside some of the stuff that we actually saw in our notices, to be there. We don't do that very well. So if we move on a little bit, what we are saying is that this is no, there is no easy answer and perhaps this is not hypothetical for you. Maybe this is really deep and very real for you. Maybe as this conversation is going on, it is sparking very deep emotions of your life experience, of the things that have happened in your life. I think there are three things that I just want to just pick out before we jump on to any more questions. The first is this, that when we ask this question, the first thing I would say is that we are instinctively saying 
that the world is not as it ought to be, aren't we? There is, there is the sense in which, and I think there is a rightness in a sense, for us to rage against many of the issues of this world. There's a, a really excellent book written by a guy called John Swinton. He's written a book which is entitled Raging with Compassion. I think that's a great combination to rage with compassion. There are things going on in this world which we should be angry about. That this world is not as it ought to be. I think we see a little moment when we see Jesus alongside the grave of somebody who he loved very dearly, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, Lazarus has died. The words that are used for Jesus in his engagement with that issue, when he looks around, give a sense of raging. There is a sense of God in this world looking at the brokenness of this world and entering into our plight and saying, this is not how it should be. We instinctively are saying that the world is not how it is. Secondly, when we, when we turn that anger towards God, as many I can see that there is a, a reason for us to do that in our thinking in our, as we first come to it. However, when we turn our anger towards God, I think we are also saying something else which is very deep. It's suggesting that it's not just that we need an answer it's actually saying that we need help from outside of us. It's admitting we can't solve this. We can't resolve this problem. This is bigger than us. That The resolution to this problem has got to be outside of us. We're speaking about our need, our desperate need. And then thirdly, I want to suggest the flip side of that is if we just pause for a moment and say, let's imagine that there is no God, then we really have a problem. We really have a problem. Because all of that challenge, all of that issue, all of that suffering is still there. It doesn't go away if God doesn't exist. What we are faced with is that there is nothing outside of us that can help. So we ask the question, is it possible that the God who is portrayed in the Bible, is it possible that that God might be a God of help? What we've been looking at is little excerpts from the, the, the good news that Mark brings of Jesus, the gospel of Mark, the life of Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 1 begin, the very first words say this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. God 
is good news, Mark says. So let's just pause. Let's see if there's anything else that we might throw up on the screen. Uh, if there's any questions that we might just pick up on at this point. Uh, and then we'll continue on into that theme a little bit. <laughs> How do I remember that God is good in the midst of suffering? I think there's one major book in the Bible which really deals with the issue of suffering, and it's the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. I think the beauty of the book of Job is its sublime honesty. It, it's a picture of human experience in the most horrific of trials and difficulties and hardships. At the end of it, at the very end of that book, we see Job and God in dialogue. Uh, and what is the answer that Job receives? Does he receive a kind of an explanation of all of the suffering? <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't. At the end of the book, he receives this message, essentially. I am. That's basically what he receives. He, God says, look, look at who I am. That's it. I wonder whether, well, I'm convinced, actually, that that book has been penned by the authorship of God for us to see, number one, the reality of that tragedy of human suffering. And yet, it points to what we're saying here. It says, at the end of it, the reality of a good God is our greatest hope. And I would say, in answer to that, how do I remember I think keep coming back to that. Just keep coming back to that. In all of this, God is good. In all of these tragedies, God is good. Because the, the, the flip side is that we end up in the Stephen Fry world. Well, God must be bad. And then we've got no hope. But if we hold on to, in the middle of all of this, God is good, God is good then we're looking to something outside of us, which is hope. Maybe if we just pick up one more. When I am suffering, is God allowing it or causing it for my good because He loves me? I don't know. <laughs> I honestly don't know. It's way, way, way more complex than that, but I think there, is, there are little indications in the Bible we read in Romans in chapter 8, we read that everything works for the good of God's people in the broadest sense. Why are you going through what you're going through? I, I know that God is good, and I know that ultimately our journey of knowing Him is resolving all of the problems of this life. In, in that eternal life, which, which we begin to see in all of this, well, how did God keep me in all of that? How did He hold on to me? Because I didn't hold on to Him, He held on to me. And at the end of it, I suggest that we're able to look back and we're able to say, in all of that, it was God who held on to me. 
And I also know, and I know personally, that there are times when I know that my heart and my attitude is rebelling against God. I know I am. I know I have. And I also know that in that, God does not leave me comfortable. I suffer in that at times. I am knocked off course. I am bent out of shape. The edges are knocked off me. God causes me to suffer in my rebellion against Him. Is that a bad thing? No. That is a really, really good thing. Because if He didn't love me, He wouldn't care. But because he cares, he engages with me in whatever way I need to be engaged with so that I will see, come back to me because there's no hope out there. I I, I think maybe this afternoon is one of the most challenging of subjects and yet very much one of the most personal. I, I think that that's where I would say life has been at times. It's not good out there without him. And I need to be reminded of that. And he will deal with me in ways which remind me. So is it, does he allow it, stroke cause it? I hope so. I hope so for me. Because that's what I need. Left to my own devices, I might think I'm going down a great, easy, fantastic line but it might not be where I ought to be. We'll carry on. Mark says, this is the... Do you notice what Mark says? The beginning of the good news. That's fascinating, isn't it? The beginning of the good news. He goes on to start to talk about the beginning of this story of the life of Jesus. In other words, what he's introducing us to is the idea that Jesus, his life, his presence in its entirety is the good news. He is the good news. Something remarkable, I just want to plant in your minds a few verses from around about 700 and odd years before Jesus, before we move on to the next, because you will see the connectedness. Isaiah chapter 53 says this, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. That was written 700 and odd years before Jesus. Now let's, using Mark's account of the whole of the life of Jesus, jump from that opening verse to the back end of his account, the second to last chapter, chapter 15, where we enter into, and this is where the hope really begins in the issue of suffering. And it's this, that God does not isolate himself from suffering, 
but he rather immerses himself in suffering. That is the great hope. Is God some sort of distant God, or is he a present God? And what does that suffering actually mean? Mark chapter 15 uh, portrays the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. If you've seen the film, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, a number of years ago, he's actually bringing out a new one, which looks really interesting regarding the resurrection. Be looking forward to seeing that. But The Passion of the Christ, if you were able to come to terms with watching it, is an incredible portrayal of the human suffering of Jesus. And I think that that is remarkable on its face, is that Mark says this is the beginning of the good news of God present in the world, and he concludes it with God crucified on a cross. Not hiding from suffering, but actually immersing himself in suffering, giving himself to suffering. In fact, in Isaiah, what does it say? He was a man of suffering. Isn't that amazing? He immersed himself in suffering. But why and what does it mean? Why does that give us hope? I just want to pick out three little things. Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Midday, just outside of Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, Jesus has been flogged, he's been journeyed, with a baying crowd out onto a mountain, hillside, outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and under the authority of actually both the Romans and with the desire of the Jewish people, the two people together, he is nailed to a cross. And as he is on the cross, Mark says, it goes dark. Now that is interesting to us. But if we were a first century Jewish reader, that would absolutely blow us away. What? Mark, you said at the beginning, this is God. And now you're saying, as he's on the cross, it goes dark. What does that mean? One of the things that the Jewish mind understood with darkness is that darkness is significant and portrays the judgment of God. It goes way back, all the way back to the forming of God's people. As, the, as they left Egypt and under darkness, the judgment of God came on the land. And in that darkness, Mark says, Jesus, the very center of this storyline, comes under darkness. It wasn't just that he was on the cross for a long time, it was the middle of the day. And in pictorial, graphic, lived out drama, God says, you are under my judgment. That's the first thing. What goes on? 
three hours later, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It's a great little moment in the Passion of the Christ. Really interesting the way he portrayed it, Mel Gibson. It was subtitled right the way through the film. And the whole of the narrative is in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Thank you. It's in Aramaic. The language of the people. And Mark preserves some of this language. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) If we're not sure, if we're not clear what that darkness meant, then Jesus now makes it very clear, doesn't he? Right the way through, Jesus always uses Father, and now he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is that separation, and yet at the same time, intimacy of the Father and the Son. There is the forsaking, and yet at the same time, a mysterious commitment of the Father and the Son to be in this together. This is doing something. And Jesus says, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 37, a few verses later, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And then in a moment, we're taken to a completely different scene. Why? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, from the temple up to the um, mountain, mount behind Jerusalem, mile, a couple of mile and a half, I think it is, something like that. You can see them what the temp, from the Temple Mount. You can see the raised part, which is now within modern Jerusalem. Mark takes you in a moment to a completely different scene. Why? Because it is the most dramatic piece of the story. It is the greatest piece of good news, actually. It makes sense of why Mark says this is good news. Because the temple is the very place of kind of separation from God and humanity. Ultimately, the closer you get to God, when you finally get to that most holy place, there's this huge curtain which separates and it is torn apart. It is opened up as Jesus dies. Do you see what's happened? We began with Stephen Fry's words. Why did you make it like this? We conclude that actually God didn't make it like this. It begins with dignified humanity. It ends with dignified humanity. But right in the middle, there is the most undignified of humanity. There is the innocent. We asked the question last week, why do innocents suffer? On one level, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know why this innocent suffered. Because the innocence of Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. It's the moment where the justice of God 
and the mercy of God come together. I do two things in this moment. I say, justice matters. And I say, mercy matters. And that's why Mark says this is good news. And that's why God is not some sort of capricious God who is out there. That is just such a wrong description. God is a God of immersed suffering. But at the same time, a God of rescue. A God of salvation. A God of saving. One of the things we said earlier is we realize we... We can't solve the problem ourselves. Shouting out at God, say, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you do something? And here we see he did. Isn't that great news? That is good news. That's why he begins it and builds right the way through the storyline to this point. Now we see Jesus dead on a cross. And that's good news. We got anything that we just maybe conclude with? Maybe just one question just to conclude. How should we deal with personal suffering if we are a believer in God? I think there's two things to say. There is an encouragement in the book of Romans which says there are moments when we can't even pray ourselves. But believers in God are knit into God. We, we dwell in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling within us. That's, a, that's just a, an amazing concept which we, we can't unpack now. But it says that in those most desperate moments, in groanings and words that we cannot understand, the Holy Spirit continues to pray when we cannot pray. What does that mean? It can, the Holy Spirit continues to keep us in relationship with God when we don't feel as if we can keep ourselves in relationship with God. Wow, that is, that is amazing, isn't it? That is great news. How should we deal with it? I think, finally, the greatest hope is it is not always going to be like this. You know, it would be wrong to say, well, of course, Jesus will resolve all of these problems because there's some problems that he doesn't seem to resolve. And yet that idea of dignified humanity at the end of the age with no tears and no suffering is our hope. Maybe I should just conclude with this. We are all to a greater or lesser extent, eventually going to suffer. We are. There is going to come that moment when all of us will take our final drawing breath and it will seem as though that great enemy has finally won. And in that suffering, we say, no, no, you have not won because there is more than just this life. I'm going to pray. I'm really sorry that we haven't managed to catch up with more questions, but um, we'll aim to do some more next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news in Jesus. We have dealt with some amazing themes, and it is right at the very center of the good news that Mark describes. 
We pray that we might come to terms if we haven't already with this good news. We pray that we might embrace it. We pray that we might love it. We pray that it might become our real hope. Not just for now, but for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.